Let's pray, and then we'll look into God's Word this morning. So Jesus, uh, I say this frequently, and I think we all believe this. We believe in your Holy Spirit. And we say that not simply as a statement of truth. We say that as a statement that reflects reality, even in this moment in time, on this Sunday morning, in this place, on this gym floor, in this building, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe he's present. Your word says he's present inside each one of us who have opened our lives to you, Jesus. But he's present around everybody. He's always present. And he speaks to us. The Bible said he always points us to you, Jesus. He shows us things. So would you give us receptive ears and eyes to what the Holy Spirit wants to show us or say to us this morning? Let me ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, if, the, if the projector was brighter, you would see this was IU candy stripes. So I plan to do this regardless of if they won or lost yesterday. But they won, so now I can say. So uh, finish the song for me here. It's, no, you don't need to sing with me, but Indiana, our Indiana, Indiana, we're all for you. We will fight for the cream and crimson, for the glory, all right? For the glory of old IU, right? What are we saying? The word for the day is glory, right? So every time I sing this song, I think about, for the glory of old IU. What are we saying if you're an IU fan, if you're not an IU fan? I don't know. Maybe other fight songs have the word glory in it. I don't know. But if you're singing that, what are we saying when we want, we'll fight for the cream and crimson for the glory of old IU? So it's something positive, right? We want something about IU to look good, appealing, powerful, whatever. But whenever we sing that, I, I, I'm just wondering, I just think about what, what are we saying when we say that? And what does the word glory mean? It's a very religious term. It's a church term. It's a churchy term. So that's the word for the day is glory. What does it mean when we say we want to give something glory? Like in this case, we're trying to give IU glory. Other than a few weeks ago, it was hard to do that with basketball, but now it's easier, right? All right. But what does it mean that if we are doing something for the glory of something else? Today, we're talking about glory as it pertains to God. But what does that mean for us average Ordinary people on Sunday, February 12th, 2023, we have lives, we have jobs, we have families, we have bills to pay, but what does it mean that we live our lives for the glory of God? I remember uh, early on, and I'll, we'll get the text here in a second, but a lot of churches have these, what, what we'll talk about the whole doctoral statements, statements of faith. And I worked at one years ago, and their opening statement, this, this was normal, it, it still is normal. This church exists for the glory of God. And that's when I started thinking, what does that mean? I mean, it's a very religious term. Oh, we just want to glorify God. But what does that mean? How do we do that? What does that look like? What does it feel like? I mean, it sounds right. I mean, even you'll hear, you will hear athletes in the game before or after the game tonight who will say, I just want to give all the glory to God. And Grant, I think, they're, I, think they're, I think they're sincere. And they may know what they mean, but I just wonder if most of us, or at least the fans watching, okay, give glory to God. What, do we, what does that mean that I want, that, what does the glory of God even look like? So that's the word for the day. So I've been doing a series on uh, wanting more. Started off with revival before Christmas, but the whole idea of revival 
is to have the same spirit that Paul has in Philippians when he says, I want to know Christ. I want more. And if anybody, he was already had experienced Christ in ways none of us have yet. But he said, I want more. I want to know Christ more. So the idea of what does it mean for us to want more of, of our life with God? Because like I said, most of us would probably say, well, I, got, I got the heaven box checked off. I got my ticket to heaven. I'm good for eternal life. So why do I have to want more? But the ticket mentality is not really the way the Bible tells us to think about our relationship with God. It's kind of like a relationship with a person. You want to get closer to them. You want to, get, you want to know them better. So what does it mean to want more of God in a way that us in our everyday lives can understand and, and we can maybe tap into the desires that God's put in us to know him more? And what does that mean? Um, how do we do that? So uh, what's the next slide? I forget what the next slide is. All right, so keep it on want more. All right, so on the topic of revival... So in the last week, I just read somewhere, there is a, I'm, I'm, I'm being sincere with this term, there's, there's a revival happening with students at Asbury College, which is in Wilmore, Kentucky, um, south of Lexington, it's a Christian college. It would be like God to do something in Kentucky. It's kind of like, you know, whatever. But, but so it's a revival, they say. I mean, I, I, but it's, uh, and what they say is, you know, students had a worship service, a lot of them stayed, confessed sins, kept singing, kept praying, classes were canceled the next day, students are sensing that the spirit of God, one person even wrote, I read this just yesterday, when I walked, because they were all in like a big auditorium, and this was hours after it started, when I walked into the room, I felt the weight of the Holy Spirit, okay, what, does that, what does that feel like, what does that mean, I'm not doubting it. But they said, I felt the weight of the Holy Spirit. I felt something inside of me that was different. Now, that's in the last, you know, 20, 30, 50 years, there's been times where those things have happened often on Christian college campuses in different environments. My hunger is not only for that, but what it would look like if a whole community, like Bloomington, had revival. Because it seems like, it seems like revival historically, it's not just... It often starts with, but not always, it's not just young adults, because that's that time of life where we're all kind of energetic. But the revivals historically in the Bible is where older men, women, people who have nothing to do with God all of a sudden get touched by God and they want to follow him. So think about people you know in Bloomington who, in your knowledge of them, have nothing to do with God. What would it be like if God if they felt the weight of the Holy Spirit in their life? What would, that, what would that mean if all of a sudden they started hungering for God? Like you would be like, like I think about people I know and I'd be like, that'd be the last person I think would hunger after God. Think about what it would look like if the Spirit of God started to move in their lives or in a community or in a church or in churches where people who don't currently know God or care somehow feel the movement and the conviction and the calling of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And they're, and they're made whole in that sense. So I, that, so I think the college things, I love those things, but it's like there's always more, right? We should always want more. Not, not, it's not like I'm not content. I'm not, no, always want more in your life 
with God. Always want more. So I've been, uh, been looking at the passage in Exodus 32, 33, 34. And I can go to the next slide. So this is, the, this is the period where the children of Israel, the Israelites, they'd all been slaves in Egypt. And I'll put, I'll put Egypt over here today. All right. They'd all been slaves in Egypt. It was horrible. God had promised they were his chosen people. And they're like, that, what does that mean? We're, we're being treated awful. God frees them through Moses, the plagues. God frees them through the plagues. Pharaoh finally lets them go. So hundreds of thousands at least, we don't know exactly how many, transversing across the desert of peninsula of Sinai to eventually go to what is now modern-day Israel, to the promised land. So they've seen these great works of God. And there's a point where Moses is... Moses has already told them some of the commandments and the ways that God wants them to live so they can have the fullness of life. They get impatient one time when Moses is gone on the mountain talking to God, and they build this golden calf idol, which, again, seems like distant from what we would ever do, but a, a, a golden calf represents anything that you want more than you want God. You want more money. You want more in your relationship. You want more of your future. You want better health. Anything you want more than you want more of God becomes a golden calf. So you, none of us have golden calves built in our homes, and we're not going to melt down jewelry and put one up here. But we all have them. And, uh, because it's basically saying, I'm not going to wait for God to do those things in my life. I got to make it happen myself because I don't know that God is, like we sang, I don't know that God is really good to me. So I got to make sure I ensure my own good life because I'm not sure if God's going to pull through. We would never say that because we know that's the wrong thing to say, but that's what a gold calf is. is when I'm, so my, my gauge is, do I find, what do I find myself worrying about, whether it's future or money or health? If I find myself worrying about that, then it might be an indicator that that's something that I want more than I want God because I got to figure out how to solve these problems because I'm not sure if God is going to solve those problems for me. So the whole, so they, and in this case, the people of Israel said, oh, we're going to do whatever God commands. And they do this idol. And then God says to Moses, well, I mean, they're, they're, God gets angry. The Bible tells us he's angry. And he says, okay, Moses, you guys can go on to the promised land. I'm not going with you. And God's not being punitive. He's not being like this human weird emotion. He's just, he said, if I went with you, I'd probably destroy the people. And Moses, and the people, when the people hear that, they know God said that. And it said the people are just kind of stopped in their tracks. And they're like, oh, we, we want God with us. They saw what God with them looked like in the past, like most of us have. And then they're like, no, we don't want, we want God with us. And they go into mourning over their sin. Because a large part of wanting more of God or any kind of personal or corporate revival, there's going to be confession of sin. All right, because sin is anything we put our energy into more than we want to God. All right, so they don't want, we don't. And then Moses challenges them. They, they pray. They start to pray more. They have this tent Moses puts out outside the camp, and people who want to seek God, all right, they want more of God, can go out there. Moses is out there regularly. So whenever he left the camp to go out there to the, it's called the tent of meeting, the people would go outside their tents, and they would stand in honor of Moses. 
And they would kneel because they knew God was going to show up. And the Bible actually tells us when Moses was out there, this pillar of cloud would drop over the tent. Now, this is where it's kind of like, okay, either it's, this is a weird meter. Either it's true or it's not true. I believe the Bible's telling us historically accurate. So something, they saw this supernatural cloud hover over this tent of meeting when Moses was there because God was with them. And the Bible tells us the court the cloud represents, here's our word of the day, the glory of God falling onto the tent where Moses was. So the glory of God fell on him. So, so and we're going to unpack the word glory a bit more here. But So the cloud is, represents the glory of God. Moses then has this conversation with God in the tent of meeting. Why the, the cloud is there. So there's something supernatural Moses is experiencing. He's a human being like we are. What he experienced, we can experience. So I'm not, he wasn't like super special. He wasn't like a superhero. I mean, he's a hero of the Bible. But, so he's having this conversation with God. And again, the word of the day is what? Glory, thank you. So here's the conversation. It goes like this. I'm going I'm to read it, but this is basically what happened. One day, Moses says something. God says something. Moses says something. God says something. Moses says something. Right. This is in the tent of meeting after all this golden calf stuff and people are mourning over their sins and they're seeking God and Moses is like, God, you have to go with us. You can't not go with us. So here's the passage. This is Exodus chapter 33 and I'll just read it but leave the slide up there. So this is the conversation, God and Moses. And if any, any, any example of prayer in the Bible, if Moses is talking to God this way, then it, it's the same kind of conversations we could have with God. Again, Moses wasn't like a superhero that can pray ways that we can never pray. Ordinary people can pray these prayers, all right? So Moses says this to God. This is the clouds hovering. You've been telling me, take these people to the promised land, but you haven't told me who you're going to send with me. You've told me I know you by name and I look favorably on you, but if it's true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways. He want, Moses wanted more. Let me know your ways so I understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember this, that this, your nation, this is your nation and we're your people. So Moses is reminding God, you said you chose us. So, so then the Lord replies, I will personally go with you, Moses. He had said before he wasn't going to go because he was so angry. Moses convinces God to change his mind. Whole other topic of conversation. God changes his mind because of prayers of people. I will personally go with you, Moses. I will give you rest, and everything will be fine for you. I mean, just literally, hours before, God was angry, said, I'm not going to go with you. Moses pleads, prays. God responds. So, then, so God said, I'm going to go with you. Then Moses says, so if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave. We're not, if you're not going to go with us, don't even have us go anywhere. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on your people, if you don't go with us? And I love this line. For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on the earth. Your presence among us sets us apart. All right? What sets us apart is not that we don't drink or we don't smoke cigarettes. Or we don't do this. We don't do this. We vote Republican or whatever. That doesn't set us apart. Moses, what sets us apart is your some, you're with us, and people know it. People know there's some kind of 
awareness that there's a supernatural reality about the people who have Jesus, the spirit of Jesus in them. Moses is not saying in that way. He's saying in the Old Testament way. But if people know that you favor us because how we live. Your presence is with us. So your, for your presence among us sets your people and, and me apart from all other people in there. Then God says this to Moses. This is the, toward the bottom. The Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked. For I look favorably on you, and I know you by name. The Bible even tells us in the, around this passage that God talked to Moses like a friend talks to a friend. Which I think is the goal of prayer. We can talk to God that way. We don't have to use like, King James, dear God, thee thou. It's like, no, we talk, they talk like they were friends. Moses said something, God replies. Moses said something, God replies. I will indeed do what you've asked me. I know you by name. Then Moses bold the last thing he says is then show me your glory right then show me your glory okay god you said you're going to go with us i don't even know exactly who you are god i know you're powerful because i saw the things you did in egypt i saw you did with the red sea and now you say you're going to go with us but i i really don't know you i mean you and i might say god i really don't know you i, I think i know you i don't know you so he said so now god i'm I want you to show me your glory. Okay, again, it's a word, but what's he asking for? What is it? Then show me your glory. I mean, this is the prayer that you and I could pray. God, show me your glory. It sounds maybe too broad, too bold, too big, but and maybe even religious sounding. But if Moses can ask for that, then so can we. God, show us your glory. Show me your glory. And God actually says, I will. I won't finish the whole passage, but he basically says, I'll show you my glory. I'm going to put you in this, in this crevice in the rock, and you'll see my backside, but you can't see my front side. Cause my fr and we don't know what God was meaning by that. It's not like God's a man, but he said, nobody can see me face to face and live. So I'll let you see my glory, but you're not going to see all of it because it's so overwhelming and powerful that you will not be able to live. All right. So God says he's going to. So now let's, let's unpack the word glory. All right. So the word glory, let me go back, go back to this, sorry. The word glory, in the Old Testament, it's, I'm not, I'm not trying to be impressed, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is kabod. And so, uh, like there's a house on campus for the Reformed Jewish students, it's called the kabod house, they spell it C-H-A-B-A-D. It's the house of glory. So the kabod of God is the glory of God, it's weight, it's substance. It's like he's all, it's all there. The glory of God, it's the substance of God, the heaviness of God. In the New Testament, the, the word for glory is doxa, doxa, uh, like doxology. Doxology is we are giving glory to God, all right? So the word in, the word in that, that time period of history had the sense of weighty and powerful honor, fame, majesty. That's what we sing for the glory of OLIU. It's weighty. All right, it radiates the glory of God. The glory radiates from a person and makes an impression on others. If somebody has glory about them, other people feel it. All right, and sometimes we give glory. I mean, we give glory to movie stars or athletes, but when we're around them, we're like, wow, we feel something from them. It's not the glory of God, but it's the glory that man gives man. But glory is always something that if somebody has it, 
we experience it. We feel something different around them. Um, for to the Greeks, ancient Greeks, fame and glory were two of the most important things for anybody to aspire to want. I want fame and glory. I want other people to glorify me, to say that I am weighty, to say that I am heavy, I'm complete, I'm all in all, and I'm everything. So that's kind of that concept. But let me just trace it to the Bible. So in Exodus 14, which had been when God was getting, convincing Pharaoh through the plagues and all the miracles to let the people of God go, God talks about his glory. He said, you know, I'm going to, he said, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they will charge in after the Israelites, Red Sea, and my glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops. So God's glory is displayed when the water drowns all the Pharaoh and his charioteers. When my glory is displayed through them, all Egypt will see my glory and know that I'm the Lord. So God, in this case, his glory was by his supernatural power of the destruction of the Egyptian forces that were trying to kill God's people. And by the supernatural reality of the Red Sea, God says, when that happens, all of Egypt's going to know my glory. They're going to know that, if I can say it this way, I'm the man. I'm the guy. I am the, there's no God like me because I'll do this. And God's not angry. He's not punitive. He might be angry. God's not punitive. He's not like human, but he, he is he is zealous that he's the only one. There's no God but me, all right? That's, that's chapter 14 of Exodus. Then later on in Israel's history, in the book of 2 Chronicles, chapters 6 and 7, Solomon just finished, finished building the temple. So again, the word of the day is glory. Solomon just finished building this temple that for years he had wanted to build and God had enabled him to build. And this is the dedication service of the temple. So they have this, everybody's there. This is now in... Jerusalem, they've gone to the promised land, they're there. And Solomon says, God, when you, this, this temple's a place where you're going to hear us and forgive us. This is going to be, because it was the, the characteristic of God, God, you hear, you hear our cries, you forgive us, and you hear us. That's all, we, we want that from God, right? That's kind of a core of who he is. So Solomon has this big prayer of thanksgiving and dedication of this huge temple and it says, when Solomon, this is Second Chronicles, when Sol Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven, all right? So again, weird meter, but if it's true, it's true. So it's weird. Fire flashed down from heaven and burned up the burnt offerings and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So fire comes down, the glory of the Lord fills the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. The most holy people, the humans, the priests, couldn't even enter because the glory of the Lord was so powerful. So don't know what that looked like, but something they knew, if we go in there, there's some kind of power in there. The glory of God is in there, and we can't even go in. When all the people of Israel saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord filling the temple, they fell face down on the ground. And worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, He is good. His faithful love endures forever. So their response to God's goodness wasn't, We're afraid. It was reverence. They fell on their knees, but they're like, He's good. And His love endures forever. He is who He says He is. And He's the man. 
He's God. There's nobody else. He's it. And he's got power. And so the glory filled the temple. And that was, so again, we're backing up to why did, what was more Moses asked for? He said, God, show me your glory. So So then the New Testament, Jesus becomes the topic of glory. Just in the Gospel of John alone, we're told that Jesus revealed his glory. That was when he um, turned the water into wine. Said he thus revealed his glory. He revealed something about himself that was like full, complete, heavy, true, powerful, honor, fame. Said, talked about Jesus entering his glory. He received his glory from the Father, so he received this weightiness of person from the Father. He he gives glory back to the Father. Jesus was. He wasn't like, I give, my, I give glory back to the Father. I'm going to turn, if I can say it this way, I'm going to turn the spotlight back on God because I want people to see who God is really like. That's why Jesus came, in part. I want people to see what God's really like. I'm going to put the spotlight on the characteristics of God. He's good. He's merciful. His love endures forever. So Jesus gives glory back to the Father. The Bible says Jesus radiated the glory of God. He deserves our glory. He brings us into glory. And because of his death on the cross, he's crowned with glory. So his suffering somehow was the pathway for him to have the fullness of the glory of God in his life. That's Jesus. But now in the New Testament, it talks about you and me and glory. It says we can see the glory of Jesus. We see, Paul says, we see the glory of Jesus. We see it in his face. So there's something that was, again, tangible, and it made an impression on the people around Jesus. They saw his glory. We give, Paul says, we give glory back to God. We see glory in the face of Jesus. And glory, this is uncomfortable, but glory is produced in us when we go through troubles, Paul tells us. the, the, The power, the supernatural weightiness the substance of who God is is produced in us when we endure through trouble and suffering. The Bible also tells us that those who don't believe are blinded to the glory of God. The Bible tells us the God of this world, Satan, has blinded them. They can't, they, they can't experience the impression that the glory of God can have on them because they've been blinded. So you think about your friends, neighbors, coworkers, family members who don't know Jesus. I don't mean who aren't just who, who who don't say they're Christians. I mean who really don't know Jesus, and you know they don't know Jesus. You know they're not following Jesus. It's because Satan has blinded them; they can't see the glory of God. They can't experience it. There's no impression on them from God. Something in them is blocked, and it's a spiritual reality. So. So the glory is this, it's, it's expressed in Jesus in his miracles and the way he treated people. The disciples said, we, can, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We know there's something substantial about God. So now we go back to Moses' prayer, show me your glory. Okay, God, show me your glory. And he doesn't say that tritely. He has this conversation. I want to know you more. I don't know you. I know a little bit about you. I can cite doctrinal things that are true about you, but I want more of you, God. 
So show me your glory. So I put down below the question I've had every week, which is kind of a subset of this. If you pray to God, show me your glory, do you really want anything else more than you want more of God? Because you won't say, show me your glory. I, I can't pray that to God if there's something I want more than to know God. Because if I want financial security more than I want to know God, I will not tell God to show me his glory because he's liable to expose my idolatrous golden calf toward financial security. If I want relational, I want my relationships to be you know, better or whatever, not that that's a bad thing, but if I want that more than I want God, if I say to God, show me your glory, he's going to expose to me the, the, the value I've put on other people affirming my, other people affirming me and not getting my affirmation primarily from God. Or if I want health, or if I want a future that I, I want a certain job, if I want, if I have wants that exceed my wants to know God more, to pray, show me your glory means that God will libel exp- he won't lie, but he will show you things in you. The Bible uses the image of fire. He will burn up those things in you that don't belong because they've become idols to you. The desires aren't wrong. It's not wrong for you to desire health. It's not wrong for you to desire to be married, to have children. It's not wrong for you to desire financial security. Those aren't wrong desires. They become disordered desires when we put them at the top. And God will not, God is, he will not, he won't, take, he won't tolerate any kind of place where he's second place or even tied for first, right? So desires are really good. Um, kind of as an aside, if the, the nature of Eastern religion, especially Hinduism, they would say the solution of the problems in the world is we need to kill our desires, stop desiring. They said it's our desires that lead us into jealousies and envies and fights and wars. So the, the, the apex of Hinduism is kill your desires. Don't have any desires. Your desires, they're bad. The nature of Christianity is no, your desires are good because God put them in your heart. Just don't let them become disordered and put God anywhere else but first. Your desire for relational wholeness with somebody else, your desire for financial security, your health, or a future that you look more forward to, those aren't bad desires. Don't ever think your desires are bad, but they can be disordered. And once they get disordered, golden calves start showing up everywhere. So I, my, my, my challenge from this week, or my, my uh, you might, if you've been around Exodus enough, you know I'm a real big one for challenge people to pray short prayers like pour out your spirit on me or pour out your spirit on my son Mark or my daughter Gretchen or fill us with your Holy Spirit. Those are really good short prayers. This is the new short prayer I'll challenge you with. Ask to ask God, show me your glory. God, I want you to show my daughter Allison your glory. I want you to show Kathy your glory. I want you to show people in this church your glory. But it starts with me. God, show me your glory. And if I ask God to show me his glory, I know what comes with that. I'm not asking God, just, hey, show me how cool you are. I'm not asking God, show me what you can do for me. I'm saying, God, show me who you are. And in light of that, show me who I can be 
and help me get rid of the things in me that are keeping me from being all that you know I can be. Because if I'm saying show my glory and these Bible passages of the glory of Jesus, the glory of the Old Testament temple includes fire and people falling on their knees and proclaiming the goodness of God and Jesus gets glory through his suffering, then glory is an incredibly powerful and I think it's woven into the desire of every human being. We want the glory of God. We want to see his glory. We want to experience the supernatural reality of God. So, and again, you might say, well, that just sounds like a lot for Moses to, because Moses showed himself to him. And there's a passage in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah sees the glory of God and he falls on his face and he says, I, I'm ruined. I've seen God. I mean, that may not be any of us. So let's put them over here. Let's put them over here at the 9 and 10 level of the scale of knowing God. It's, it's still humanly possible. It's not wrong to ask for. But if you or me, if I'm like at a two or three in my knowledge of God and being aware of his glory, don't I at least want to be at four or five? You may not jump from two to ten. Maybe the, maybe the game doesn't allow you to do that. But shouldn't you want more of God than what you currently have? If we know it's possible for Moses or Isaiah or the Apostle Paul to have an experience of God in this life that just make them, wow, how do these... How, do they, how does Paul deal with suffering, with joy? How does, how does Moses endure the challenges, but he has this dead, solid confidence in God? I want to be that kind of person. Right? I want to be confident in God. I want to know his peace. His, his, I want joy in the midst of trial. I want to be that kind of person, but it starts with I want to know God more. And so wherever you are on the scale, one, two, three, want more, right? Want more. My, my last illustration, I, I think I mentioned this book last week. I think A.W. Tozer, a pastor in the 50s in Chicago, Canada, other places, he talks a lot about desiring God and wanting more of God. And one of his, this is, this is what really makes it more accessible to you and me. He said, okay, maybe you're at the point where you can't say, I want God more. That just, maybe that, you're just not there yet. Because it's like that, that's almost, I'm not ready spiritually. Maybe you can say, I want to want God more. Maybe that's the best you can give God. Maybe, he says, you can say, well, I, I want to want to want God more. You can go back as many wants as you can, but his whole point was, wherever you are in your desire for God, want what's next. You might want more. I want to want to want. I want to know more of God. Because he said what God does is if you give God a I want to want to want to want to know you, he might transform you to I want to want to want. I want to want to want to know you. He might transform that into I want to want to know you. He might transform that prayer into God, I want to know you. Period. So start where you are with your prayers. If you're four or five wants away, but you can honestly give that to God. Give it to God. God, I, that may be the only thing you can pray. God, I want to want to want to want, however, five or six, whatever. I want to know you more. And if that's serious, even with that small want, then give it to God. He can change it. He can reduce the wants and not to the point where you can say, there's nothing I want more than God. So you don't have to jump to the 10 scale. You don't have to jump to, you don't have to, jump, you don't have to join Moses and Isaiah on the mountaintop. 
and Elijah and all the famous prophets. But you can head that way. We can all head that way. So uh, last thing I'll put on here, this is, so uh, always have communion Sunday mornings because it's all about, we, we gather because of Jesus. We gather because of Jesus is the one who embodied the glory of God. And this is what Hebrews says about Jesus. And because he suffered death for us, actually read this out loud with me. All right, start at the beginning. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. We're the many children, all right? Jesus is crowned with glory because he suffered death for us, but because he's crowned with glory, because he suffered death for us, God will bring us into glory. And that doesn't, the writer there is not just talking, he's going to bring us to heaven after we die. He's saying he'll bring us into a kind of living in life where we know, experience, and we radiate the glory of God because he's in us. So that's when we take communion every week. It's because we believe that when Jesus said, remember me, when you eat this and drink this, remember me. Maybe today what we'll simply remember is his glory that he had because he honored the Father and he suffered. So maybe as you take today, your, your simple prayer when you take this wafer and juice into your body is, okay, God, show me your glory. Or maybe you say, I want to, want to, want to. You don't need to say it out loud, but when you're taking Jesus into you, turn it back to as a prayer to him because you're wanting more of him. I'm assuming when we take communion, it's like, I want more of Jesus. So this is a want more table today. It is every day, actually, every Sunday. So let me pray, and then Aaron's going to come up and lead us in a couple songs, and then we'll we're singing. You come on up. We don't dismiss by rows. You just come up when you want to during the song, and then we offer you the bread. Take a wafer, uh, and then we just dip it in the cup. We don't drink the cup. Dip it in. Most people eat it right away. Some pick it back to their seats. So let's pray. So Jesus, Scripture tells us that you're, you're crowned with glory. You're full of glory. You radiate the glory of God. And in that sense, Jesus, you are the man. You're the only one. There's no one like you. There's no one that has the substance and the authority and the power and the mercy and the forgiveness and the goodness you have. Nobody. So there's nobody in this world we should even think about following apart from you. So when you tell us to remember you by taking this into our bodies, remembering that you are the king of glory. Even the opening... One of the Psalms that we've read earlier on other, other Sundays talks about you're the king of glory. And we open up the gates because we want the king of glory to come in. So even as we open up our mouths to put wafers and juice in our bodies, we're basically asking you, king of glory, to come into us even in greater measures. And we ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.